All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. So we're beginning, so we were like, in our service, we, uh, Connor and I were talking, and we were talking about, um, we made some changes to our service order in the pandemic to make it more live stream friendly, and then we never, we never really reevaluated that after we came back in person. We thought, you know what, we think that there would be, we'd have a richness in our worship time if um, early in the service we could have the passage read aloud so that that would be fresh in our minds as we're worshiping, as we're singing out, um, and then uh, we could come to our time like this. So, um, so that's what we're going to be doing that. We're going to have a morning prayer that can center our hearts on the things that are, that are about us. And so we, we started that this week, and um, we're, we're, we're going to be contacting some of you to participate in that, to come and to stand and to read the passage because we need to hear God's voice in the various voices that we have in our congregation. And so we'll be reaching out to you to hear that and for you to offer a prayer, a morning prayer that would help us center. So we will be contacting uh, many of you in the congregation to be part of that. And so we hope if you receive that, you wouldn't say, you know, I'm not very good at public speaking. It's like, I don't care. It's not, I don't care if you're good or bad at it. What we need is our body to read out God's Word together and to help us to center. You are an important part of our body. The body does not work without all parts. And so that's what we're not trying to, like, it's not like uh, we're like, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're talking like this is the all-star of the week. Like, I mean, maybe you get a gold sticker in your Bible or something like that. But, but anyway, all that to say, respond. It'll be wonderful. So, all right. We are in the book of Ephesians. If you're in your uh, Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. Previously in the book of Ephesians, up to this point in the letter, Paul has been, he's really been hammering home identity, and it's been pretty, it's been pretty encouraging. It's actually been pretty inspiring for me as I've been reading this book and kind of letting it into my life and, and studying it, that it has been, um, it's been vaulting. Like, it's been like, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Like, this idea that you have been on God's mind from the foundation of the world, that he's chosen to adopt you before, before anything has ever happened, that he has this plan to redeem us through the blood of Jesus and that we look forward to an inheritance to be fully given to God's children. But in the meantime, he's put his non-refundable down payment, the down deposit, as I said, the down payment, right, of the Holy Spirit in us. And that, this identity, that we live in this identity, that was the first week. And then in, uh, last week we talked about, he reminds them of their, their experience of faith and love, this, this idea of they're oriented towards God, they're, and they're, they're loving each other. But he wants their, the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened to the hope that they have, the inheritance that is going to be given that, and also the, of the power, the un, what does he say? He talks about the, 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 over, the great power in which God raised Jesus from the dead and enthroned him. Like All of this is about identity and who the Ephesians are in Christ. And it's been wonderful. It's, it's been a lot of really good news. But the news has not always been good for the Ephesians or for us. It's not always been positive. And in order for the good news to make sense, there needs to be a reminder of bad news. And sometimes when we're reminded of the bad news from which we've come, or we've made it through, that the good news can sound all that much better. And so for our passage today, and for the next two weeks, we're actually going to be in this passage for the next two weeks, which is technically Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This passage 
I, I, it's, it's hard to even, it's, it's kind of epic. This passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is kind of this epic Pauline explanation. So there's, there's 13 books in the New Testament that are attributed to the Apostle Paul, and it's been said of this passage that this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is the most effective summary we have of what Paul thinks of salvation by grace through faith. And that if, you, if you're in the, if you've in the practice ever of like memorizing scripture, maybe you memorize a verse at a time like our Awana on Wednesday nights. They're memorizing like a verse at a time. Sometimes they get a couple verses in a row. I remember when I first came to faith, I started uh, memorizing on the Navigator's Plan. Um, there was a, a girl that I was dating and she was doing the Navigator's Plan. So I'm like, okay, you know, all right. You know, girlfriends can make, you know, they can lead you in the right direction sometimes. Um, all right, this is more self-reporting than I had planned on doing this morning. But I started to memorize scripture, like verse by verse, and then I remember going to Hume Lake, and in, in, at Hume Lake Christian Camps in high school camp, um, you, got extra, you got extra spirit points, bonus points for memorizing passages, and you would memorize large passages. And I think that that's a, that's a good practice to do, not just for camp and not just for bonus points, but because hiding God's word in your heart is important. And I think that um, like, a, like a passage like uh, Romans 5, 1 through 11, or Philippians 2, 5 through 11, or uh, even Colossians 3, 1 through 17, like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, this passage is worth hiding in your heart. It is a summary of what, of really how God works in people's lives by means of faith. I should say, by grace through faith. And so I would just say that we're going to be spending the next two weeks in this section, we're going to be spending some time in here. Um, and as it's divided up, the, the bad news is first, and then it moves into how God has worked by grace and through faith, God's merciful salvation. So this week is a little bit more bad news, okay? I just want to say that. Now, I'm not, you, can't, you can't talk about God without talking good news, too, so we'll get to good news, but we're going to be talking about bad news. Whenever I, if I ever ask you, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? I always go for the bad news first. Give me the bad news first, okay? So that's what we're going to do. You guys with me? Bad news. You're like, yeah, lay it on me, Pastor Craig. Bad news first. Okay, so here we go. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to, to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the bad news. The bad news. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humanity. Here's the bad news. The bad news, you were dead. Paul's talking about the Ephesians, the the, the, the the, the people in these churches that are in the seven church region, though they've expressed faith in Jesus, he's reminding them of what is true about them in the past and really what is true about all people of all times before they come to faith in Jesus. And that is this, you were dead. And when Paul talks about you were dead, he's very much talking about, or very likely talking about, this is, this is not literal, that they're not, it's not like they're, they're dead bodies, they can't move around. They're internally, spiritually dead. That this is a, this is a death that is spiritual. That if, if life comes from God, then being alienated from God 
or turned away from God means there's no way to access life. I mean, let me say that again. If God, if God is, if God's the author of life, if you are turned away from him, if you're not turned toward him, you'd no longer have access to life, to spiritual life. And so he says that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And these are both the evidence of death. You, I know you're dead because of these trespasses and sins. They're also the reason for the death, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And it's interesting because Paul will talk about, we, we've already looked a lot at this idea that, that life is in Christ, right? Death is in sin. And this idea that you are either in Christ or you are in or under the power of sin. So this idea of being dead, this idea of being like spiritually dead, even though you're alive, is not a new idea. That actually in the ancient world, in the, among the Greeks, they had this saying that uh, it was called somasima, that the body, the body is a crypt. That you could be, you could be alive and, and you can be physically alive and, and all kinds of things are going on and you have abilities and skills, but inside it's, there's a, it's just death, that the body is a crypt. And of course we saw this, we saw this in Ezekiel, right, with the valley of dry bones, that the people of Israel were like, we're alive but our bones are dry. We're alive but our bones are dry. So this idea, Paul is, is leaning on this idea of, of really, I mean, this is the walking dead, right? I, I, I haven't watched that show, but I know a lot of people do, and they appreciate it. But even the walking dead is a bit of a metaphor for humanity, isn't it? Like the whole show, I hate to break it to you, but the whole show is a metaphor. Okay, all right. All right, so this idea that, that there's people that are walking around, but they're actually, they're dead, they're walking. Anyway, okay, thank you. I'll be here all week. Talk about mansplaining. I am totally over-explaining. It's okay. All right. So, um, so this, and then he says, so you're dead in your trespasses and sins, okay, in which you once walked. And this verb, the, the walking, it actually says, if you have the NIV, it'll talk about you used to live in this. But the word in Greek is actually the word, um, is the word to walk, and it, br- it brings in this idea, this Jewish idea, in, in Jewish wisdom literature, there was this idea of two paths. It was a two paths wisdom. And th- there's a path of the righteous, and there's a path of the wicked. Two paths. And Paul is going to lean on that imagery that you're either walking on the path of life, or you're walking on the path of death. You are either walking on the path of righteousness, or you're p- walking on the path of wickedness. You're either walking underneath the authority of Jesus, or you're walking underneath the authority of the powers of this world. Two paths. And you were walking on the wrong path. We have this, um, in our family, um, we have this, uh, whether we're physically fit or we're eating right, um, we, we have, it's, uh, it's called, we're on the path. If you're, if you're doing it right, you're on the path. Okay. I think spiritually you can get, you can get on that same idea. Um, Jocko Willick, we got the, the phrase from this guy, Jocko Willick. He was a former Navy SEAL. He's a motivational speaker. And Jocko Willick has this thing like, um, he's all, how do, you get, how do you get in shape? He's all, you get on the path and you stay on the path. I mean, I'm trying to, I, I, like he's huge and he can like kill you in a lot of different ways. I, I can't do that. So I don't sound as intimidating. But basically this idea, get on the path, 
Stay on the path. And Paul embraces this idea. There are two paths. Which path are you on? And in this case, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking on the wrong path. Another way about this is the two paths idea is there's two spheres of influence. That you're either influenced on the path of righteousness by the lordship of Jesus, or you're influenced on this path that is governed by the powers of this age. And he says, you are walking in your trespasses and sins, and he goes on to, to talk about this, to talk about the, the powers in this, this other path. We were walking on the wrong path, the wrong sphere of influence, and he says this, look in verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says, look, you were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and there's these two paths. You were walking on the wrong path, and you were following, you were walking according to various other authorities other than Jesus. And this is where, when we look at the book of Ephesians, one of the things that you'll see as we look through the entire book, Paul is very interested in the powers of this world, the authority of this world. And sometimes when we think about, you know, this path, you got the path, you got the path of righteousness where Jesus is Lord, where God is sovereign, where the Holy Spirit is empowering, you've got this path. But on this other path, you've got what, um, and I, I like what um, one of the commentators that I'm reading, his name is Klein Snodgrass, which is not a great, I mean, God bless Klein Snodgrass. But what, what he says, and, but I, he, he has a, a term for what's happening on this path that's leading to death. And he, he says it's governed by what he calls an interlocking directorate of anti-human and anti-God powers. There's this interlocking, there's this kind of multiple sources of power and authority that are kind of working together in various ways that lead us to stay on that path. And so he says, you, you walked in these tres- your trespasses and sins, but he says this, if you look um, in 2-2, uh, in in he's going he's to kind of lay this out about what this interlocking directorate is. He says, first of all, he says, um, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Maybe you, in your, in your Bible, it says the way of the world, and it keeps this two path that you've got. Um, by the way, the early Jesus movement, you know what they called themselves? They call themselves the path, the way. Hehadas is what it is in Greek. The way, the path, the road. They are on the path, right? And so they would call themselves the way. But you walked in the way of the world, the cosmos. This kind of the overarching corruption of the post-fall cosmos, and that we know that in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, before God created anything, there was chaos. God was over the waters. There was chaos everywhere. And God starts to speak and he starts to order it. But after the fall, it, it gets awesomely ordered and there's this wonderful garden and he creates humans and they're, they're amazing and they're the height of his creation. But after the fall, chaos floods back in. Corruption floods back in. And when, when Paul talks about the course of the world, the way of the world. He's talking about this kind of universal re-entry of chaos into the world. It's not personal. It's just chaos, right? It's just this, it's just this uh, amazing 
uncontrollable circumstances that can come out of nowhere. But what he says is that this is corrupt, this is evil, this is, even though it might seem neutral, that this chaos, that chaos is not neutral. The way of the world. And you were, uh, you were according, you were walking according to the way of the world. And then he goes on to say, not just the way of the world, this universal corruption. He talks about, you were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of the authority of the air. This would be the idea of operating in a sphere of power that you, you, you're not on this path, you're on this path, you're in this sphere of authority, sphere, this power. And the air, when he says uh, the prince of the power of the air, the air was believed to be the domain where evil forces and evil spirits dwelled and traveled. That was in the air. In the ancient world, that's where they thought that the evil forces, evil spirits, personal evil spirits, not just the general chaos of the world, but personal demons, personalized gods. And in this case, so there are some questions about whether, so basically like the ESV says, the prince of the power of the air, the NIV says the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and I do think that this is, this is the idea of referring to the personal like the personal devil, the devil, right? Not only are you walking according to the chaos and corruption of the world, but there's a personal bad guy who's trying to do bad stuff. Not a human, but some kind of spiritual force, spiritual being that's trying to do more corruption. And he says, uh, that Paul is, that, that he's saying he's, uh, that comprehensive of this entire passage referring to the personal Satan and the devil. So you got the, the, the broad chaos, the way of the world. You have this kind of the schemes of the devil going on here. You're walking according to that. And then he says this, that in verse uh, three, he says, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. So he says, oh, sorry, in, two, in verse two, that it, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so with this, we've got the chaos, the way of the world. We have the prince of the power of the air, this person. But now we also have this other these other characters, the sons of disobedience. And Paul is saying, look, there's also in this interlocking directorate of powerful forces in this world that are anti-human and anti-God, there's chaos, there's a personal devil, but there's also human rulers human rulers that have set up systems that are anti-God. And Paul, in this, just in this short little space, is kind of laying out this, this whole power structure of the world. Overwhelming corruption and chaos, generally speaking, a personal devil who's trying to do harm, also the sons of disobedience who are on board with the devil's schemes. I know this is hard to believe, this is hard to imagine, isn't it? I'm joking. We see it every day. I mean, turn on the news. Like, this is, this is describing our world that we live in. This is, it's so amazingly contemporary. This was written 2,000 years ago. Anyway, all right, I'm, get, get back on to the thing. Um, so, uh, it, it says, it, it goes on to say, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
in the passions of our flesh. Now, a couple things here. Paul was started by saying, you all were dead. And it could be really easy because Paul was Jewish and he's talking to a lot of Gentiles. And it would be very easy for him to say like, hey, we Jews had it all together. We are the covenant people of God. You guys are the Gentiles. You were dead. But now, look, he softens it, doesn't he? He says, we all were under this interlocking directorate of powers. We have no excuse. My ethnicity did not qualify me or disqualify me from having this relationship with God, nor does yours. But we all walked in this way. And he goes on to say, um, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind. What he says, we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And this is another thing. So we've got overwhelming chaos, generalized chaos and corruption in the universe. Uh, scientists call that entropy. Everything is spinning down. You roll a ball, it's eventually going to stop. Like this is, why, this is why when your car, you hear a rattle and you're like, maybe it'll just go away. It doesn't go away. It gets worse, right? Entropy. Things get worse over time, okay? If it starts to, you're like, hey, it, it may, something, anyway, probably, just, okay, forget it. It probably just fell apart worse if you think it got better. Hang in there, okay. Overwhelming corruption, chaos. You've got a personal devil scheming behind the scenes spiritually. You have humans that are listening to that, those schemes and helping those schemes. And you might be like, yeah, but like my, I've got a good heart. And Paul says, no, you don't. Like you have, you, have, you have become part of the corruption of creation. That when Adam fell, there was a fall of all that had been created and that we have actually been affected by that. That, that effect, that it means that we have a fallen nature. Sometimes they call it a sinful nature. Paul will talk about the flesh or the mind, this, this idea of human weakness. Our own inclinations left to their own are not redeemed. That in this way, our own desires, unchecked, move us down the wrong path. Okay, so this idea in the totality of these powers, this interlocking directorate, like you might say, why is everything going so bad? And the answer is there is an interlocking directorate of powers. There's an overall corruption that comes on from the fall. There's a personal devil trying to do bad stuff, scheming behind the scenes. There are humans who are listening to him that are ruling and creating systems that are unjust. And also, your own inclinations and the things you want left unchecked and unquestioned are going to add into that whole thing. You're influenced. You are part of the problem too. And not only that, what does he start with? You're dead because of what? Actual acts of sin. So this idea that not only are you fallen, but you've actually done action of sin. It would be one thing if like, you're fallen, but I, keep, I can kind of hold back the tide. Like, I have a fallen nature, but I'm really self-disciplined. I can really hold back the tide of just how bad I can be. And the answer is no, you can't. It seeps out. And again, this is bad news. I don't know if anybody feels like this is bad news. This is really bad news. And some people might say, well, Pastor Craig, you're just so closed-minded. I'm like, look, I'm just watching the world, everybody. Like, just take a look around you. And I think one of the things, here's one of the things, everybody, 
this last, a couple summers ago, we were so, well, a couple summers ago, very dis, uh, divided politically, right? Even the idea, like, it, it's, it's not really around, like, um, like uh, freedom or, or, or God or anything like that, but one thing that is common to every person on every side with every bullhorn there is, everybody believes that something's wrong. Everybody believes that something's wrong. Something is wrong. And actually, the, other, the two sides think the other sides are evil. So this idea like there is no evil in the world, like nobody believes that. Like if we just don't call it evil, we won't have evil. Like nobody actually believes that. Everybody believes that there's some evil out there that needs to be destroyed. Some people just think you need to be destroyed. Sorry, I don't, I mean, right? Like it just depends on which side you're on. There's a universal, I think that everybody thinks that there's some kind of evil that needs to be cured. And Paul would say, you are exactly right. You might have the wrong thing in mind, but you are correct because you have noted that this world is fallen and that there are people, whether they are human or demons behind the scenes, that are doing bad things and thinking bad things and are prone to thinking bad things. Our mind left to itself without the grace of God, our own desires though natural, are satiated by means that God never intended. The things that he's responsible dominion has become domination of the creation. Right? Intimate sexual intimacy in the, bo- in the bonds of marriage has become free sex for all. Or I can decide whatever I want to be. I can identify however. And what Paul goes on to say, and this is bad news, that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest. And what does Paul mean by that? He means that all people in that natural state, in this, on this path, on this path, in this sphere of influence, with global chaos, universal chaos, a, a devil, Sons of disobedience, our own decisions, our own flesh, our own acts of sin, left on that path, we are headed for an encounter with God. After the fall of Adam, all humanity has been placed in this sphere on the wrong path, under these powers, and has participated in this, and thus the aim of God's anger. And again, just think about the, how global Paul is talking about this. He starts with this corrupted cosmos, the way of the world, personal evil spirits, demons, gods, prince of the power of the air, humans and human rulers, the sons of disobedience, personal corruption and fallen inclinations, our sinful nature, the desires of the body and the mind, and then acts of personal sin, our own trespasses and sins. And what Paul is saying to the Ephesians and these other churches, you all once lived under this directorate of powers. You were sinning and you were dead. And God's response to this interlocking directorate of power is one of what we call wrath. He he has plans and inclinations to destroy that interlocking directorate. 
He has plans to destroy it, and he ought to have plans to destroy it. They have co-opted his good creation, taken his objects of beauty and grandeur and marvel, and have soiled them, used them for his, their own purposes. And he's telling the Ephesians, you have been caught up in something bigger than yourself, but you've bought in. You bought in over the years. And when it comes to humans, though they've been caught up in something much larger than themselves, there's still blame. And I think that this is, the, this is one thing. Oftentimes, um, people will say, if, it, if the deck is so stacked against us, how is it that God can hold us responsible for that? And I, I certainly, I appreciate that, that sentiment because the deck is stacked against humanity, okay? But here's the thing, and I think this is why God still holds humans responsible for this. And that is this. When he creates humans, he doesn't create them to be under that directorate of authority. He actually creates humans to be over culture, to be over that. He creates humans to have a, a sense of uh, of control and authority that he creates. It's not, the, the height of creation is not the demonic forces or the angels. The height of creation is, it's very good after he creates male and female, after he creates humans, that we actually are made to have authority. We are created to make culture. And so when God says, look, you are the height of my creation and you choose, rather than be over this, that you choose to put yourself under this, that's on you. Yes, the deck, is the deck is stacked against you, but I didn't make you to be just a victim in this whole thing. I made you to rule and to reign. I made you to rule and to reign. And this is one of the reasons why this is, this, I think, God continues to hold humans accountable, that it's not that we have a too low of a view. We don't have too high of a view of ourselves. We actually have too low of a view of ourselves. We are meant to make these things right. All right, that's bad news. I, I hate this. I mean, does anybody feel like that's bad news? I hope you do, because that, I, like, we laid it on pretty thick, okay? And when I say we, I mean I. Um, but this is, this, this is pretty, this is bad news. We are by children nature of wrath, um, and um, this, is what, this is what our friend Klein says, Snodgrass, that is. Um, he says, the picture the text paints is bleak. Because of sins, humans are living dead. They live in keeping with a world order that ignores God and in keeping with a tyrant who works to cause disobedience. In their enslavement, they follow desires and distorted reasonings that leave God out of the picture, and therefore they are under God's wrath. The question is, what will God do? What will God do with this picture? I mean, really, this is what the whole book of Ephesians is about. If this, if this is the problem, what in the world will God do? And the answer is, God will not stay out of the picture. This is not good enough for God. And this is where the good news comes in. And the first, the first word of the good news in 2-4, two, two words, 
It's hor- this whole thing is horrible. There's an interlocking director. It's taken over the world. It's caused you to be a son of disobedience and under wrath. But God. The solution begins in one place and one place alone. It's God. God, rich, look at 2-4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's the solution to the bad news? The solution to the bad news begins with God And there's two ways that God is described, two words. God is rich in mercy. And then again, our Hebrew, our Hebraism, that when you want to intensify something, you say it twice. So what does God do? He loves us with love. He's rich in mercy and he loves with love. He's rich in mercy and he loves with love. We've just described how God's good creation has been co-opted and disordered and corrupted and God will not take it. All things will be put right. God will pour out his justice, but God might be obligated to wrath. But he is rich in mercy. As I read, as I read scripture, look, wrath is poured out quickly and at the end, it seems to me. Like when God wants to do it, it's like boom, you know, and then wrath, right? That he does it quickly and for a time. But God, like if you were to, if, if, if mercy and wrath were, like this is like, you know, those brackets and you have like, um, which hamburgers are the best and you have like in and out versus five guys and which would win and you bracketize, like it's March because we have to have brackets in March. Everything has to be bracketized. Like, so if we had a bracket of all God's attributes and all the things he does and you had wrath versus mercy, Wrath versus mercy, which one wins? Mercy wins every time. God is rich in it. He has storehouses of it. His love is deep. His love, I mean, in chapter three, he'll talk about, I want you to grasp the depth and uh, width of of the love of God. It's a supply that keeps coming and coming, and it has to because things are so messed up. He is rich in mercy. And this is one of the reasons why, look, when when I preach the gospel, sure, we can talk about bad news, but I think, and, and the bad news is bad, certainly, but the richness, there's so much mercy that we're, and we're in a time where God has said, we're in a time of patience because he's waiting for as many to come as can. God has a wealth of mercy and love. He may have some wrath, but he's rich in mercy. And look at what it says. It says that he's done three things, three things, and this mercy comes in Christ. We talked about if you are on the path of sin, you are in sin, 
If you are on the, the right path, the path of the righteous, you are in Christ. And look at what he does. He says there's three things that he's done. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you've turned to Jesus, if you've entrusted your life to Jesus, if you've trusted him for your salvation, what he did on the cross, you've trusted him, what he's done is he has bound you with Jesus, and then there's three things that he's done for you. It says in 2.6, uh, sorry, 2.5, he has made us alive together with Christ. Paul actually makes up a word to say that. Puts three words together and he makes up one. He's made you alive together with Christ. He's also done two things that we've already seen him do for Jesus. Look in Ephesians 1.19, just one, one little passage back. 1.19, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand. Raised and enthroned. He raised him from the dead and he enthroned him. And then in our passage it says that in 2.6 it says, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That if we were going to talk about what is salvation? What is this idea that you have been saved? I would say this. It is that you have been brought together with Jesus and that when God now looks at you, what he sees is his son. He sees the righteousness of his son. He sees what Jesus has done. And when he looks at you, he says, oh, that's Jesus. That's my son. He's, and who's that person with him? Oh, they must be my son too. Like my, they must be my daughter. We're so connected with Jesus. God has chosen to put us in Christ so that we can be protected from the wrath of God, so that we can come and be with him, so that we can learn his sensibilities, so that we can come to the family table, so that his spirit can indwell us. So spiritually what he's done is he's taken us, and Jesus has been raised physically, actually, and he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. We spiritually now, we have been spiritually raised with him and seated with him in authority. Like, listen to the language here. You don't enthrone people who don't have authority. And read the book of Revelation. Like, the saints are going to reign. We have been made to rule and to reign. So spiritually, he says, look, we're going we're gonna to get you out of this world. We're going to get you off this path. We're going to get you out from underneath these, this interlocking directorate. We're going to put you in Christ, and then we're going to give you the authority that you were created to have. We're also going to indwell you with the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and you're going to go out and you're going to live as my emissaries. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, storehouses of grace. I mean, isn't this awesome that God, he might have a little wrath, but he's got a storehouse of mercy. He's got a storehouse of love. He's got a storehouse of grace. That's what he's like. And what God did for Jesus, we become part of the working of his great might of raising Jesus and enthroning us, enthroning him, we participate in that and we can be in Christ. But here's what the most significant thing is. It's not that he did it because that's awesome. Like what God did, what God did is awesome. That's awesome stuff. Like only God can do that. But I think what's more significant is when he did it. And I'm not talking about when in human history he did it. 
I'm talking about when he did it in relation to us. When did he do it? He did it when we were dead in our trespasses. This is why he's going to go on to say, That's by, and there's no doubt it's by grace you've been saved because you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses. This reminds me of, of Romans chapter 5. It talks about even while, when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Even that phrase, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> you were ungodly. You were weak. He goes on to say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That he does it is amazing. When he does it is unbelievable. Because in Romans 5 it says, maybe somebody would die for a righteous person. Maybe. Maybe you die for a family member. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in this passage, God demonstrates his love while we were dead. While we were dead. Man, we had nothing to offer to God. We had actually taken part in the rebellion against him because he has rich storehouses of mercy. Rich storehouses of mercy. I think one of the, for me, one, um, one of the questions is, this theological question is, what is God's posture towards the world? Like this corrupt world that's going to hell in a handbasket. What is God's posture towards this world? And I think it's easy for, for us to think like, well, he's just angry. He's just ups, it's really angry. And God is, and they're separated. And, but here's the thing. As I read this, he, what is God's posture? God's posture is one of moving toward that world with open arms, with, with mercy and with grace to say, look, I don't want you to be part of the wrath that I pour out. I want you. I, I, that's his posture. His posture is facing that. And that's an amazing thought. Even as I think about my own posture towards my rivals or my enemies or people I don't like or political opponents or things like that, what is my posture towards them? And the idea is that God is like, look, I am going to, I am going to plead with as many people as possible. He invites us while we are weak, while we are sinners, while we are enemies, while we were dead. I think as we're, we're going to move to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to invite the, the um, worship team to come on up. Um, one of, this this two-path thing reminds me of um, uh, the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You guys know that movie? John Candy, Steve Martin, okay? And one of my favorite scenes in that movie is not the one you're thinking of, um, is when they're in the car and they hit black ice and they like spin around and then they, they just, whatever way they end up facing, they just go in that direction. And uh, they end up going the wrong way down the highway. And this, um, the station wagon with the family next to them, they pull up next to the, alongside them and they're like, you're going the wrong way. And John Candy says, how do they know where we're going? Right? And I think, when we think about the two paths, right? One thing that we, and this is part of, this is part of our call. We, our call is to be representatives of God the Father, the supremacy of Jesus, the empowering Holy Spirit. We're called to be emissaries of that. And sometimes that means turning to that path, folks on that path, and just say, 
you're going the wrong way. And you might get the response like, how do you know where I'm going? How do you know where this path leads? Well, look, any path but this one is going the wrong way. And I think that, that that's, that's one thing that we, we have a calling towards. There is also a sense as we read that, there, that God is rich in mercy. He's rich in love. He's rich in grace. However we aim that message to those on that path, it needs to be rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in grace, but full of truth. And that's going to produce some tension. It's going to produce some tension. But that's a tension that we need to find ourselves in. If you're not feeling that tension, then you need to find that tension. Because that, that is, we are in a season of tension. Walking down the wrong path and we need to say, look, you're going the wrong way. That path is not going to lead to where you think it's leading. So, as we come to the table this morning, whoops, thank you, Connor. I'm so glad Connor's back. That's good. I'm going <laughs> to um, as we come to the table today, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper, and I just want to say this. When Jesus dined with people, um, he oftentimes found himself dining with people that had no business being with Jesus. I mean, have you read the Gospels? People who had no business. And I would just say this. If you this morning, you're like, yeah, I am on the wrong path. This table's for you. Like, there's an invitation here. There's an invitation from Jesus to say, you can be on the right path. There's mercy, there's love, there's grace. There's also transformation, but there's invitation first. Invitation precedes all those things. And our time in the Lord's Supper is a time for that. And so what we do is, if you want, if you want to participate in the Lord's Supper, to come up and to grab, there's two cups, there's uh, bread on the bottom and juice on top, grab both of them. And go back to your seats, and this is just a time for reflection, a time for us to just do our own business with God, and just to think about this interlocking directorate. Like, even, if, even though we're on the right path, we can still be influenced by part pieces of that interlocking directorate, right? And just to be thinking, like, am I, the corruption of this world, the fallenness of this world, the, the thoughts of this age, have, have these been infiltrating my life in Christ? Am I listening to lies? Do I have the right people around me? What about my, even my own actions? Like, do I need to check those things? And Jesus, Jesus will be here to say, come, come, let's, let's eat and let's have a conversation. So as we enter into this time of reflection, um, we don't need to make lines. You have, there's plenty of time. Um, come on down, grab the elements, go back to your seat, and then we'll participate in it together, all together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, begin our time. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity. We're grateful that there's good news, even if that good news is preceded by bad news, and it's bad. But Father, we want to just renounce our ties to the corruption of this world. We thank you for the beauty that remains in this world, but we, the corruption, Father, we want to renounce that. And any power that would move us away from you, whether it's outside of us or inside of us, we pray that you would transform that power into a power that bends its knee to Jesus. We thank you for the invitation from your son, Jesus, to this table. And we ask that it would indeed comfort us and transform us. And so we love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.